The Haunted UK podcast is produced and released in stereo. Listening through an environment such as headphones or stereo speakers will ensure you get the best experience. Are you a die-hard football fan? Do you live and breathe the beautiful game? If so, you've just found your new favourite podcast. Welcome to That Football Podcast, the ultimate destination for all things football. We're here to bring you the latest news, in-depth analysis and passionate discussions about the Premier League and the Championship. Join us every week as we break down the biggest matches, highlight unforgettable moments and dive into the stories that make football more than just a game. Get ready for a podcast that celebrates a beautiful game and brings you closer to the action than ever before. Subscribe now to That Football Podcast and become part of the Ultimate Football Fan Community. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and all other major podcast platforms. That Football Podcast, where football never ends. Here at Haunted UK Podcast Towers, we're committed to giving you high-quality, great episodes time after time after time. But this takes a lot of effort in research, writing, editing, recording, mixing, mastering and publishing. We don't have a fancy production company or a bank of scriptwriters or a large budget to keep everything going. We are a fully independent podcast. If you'd like to help the show, then why not get over to Coffee and search for the Haunted UK podcast, where you can subscribe to give just £3 per month, the price of a coffee, or as much as you like. If you'd rather not sign up for a monthly subscription, then you can simply make a one-off donation. Again, as little or as much as you like. This really helps the show with our website, coffee membership, merchandise, equipment, as well as other financial commitments. So if you feel that you'd like to help keep the lights burning, the wheels turning and the stories rolling, then why not consider getting over to coffee and donating to the show? That's K-O hyphen F-I and search for the Haunted UK podcast. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Now, without any further delay, let's get this episode started. Here on the Haunted UK podcast, if you include all the listeners' contributions, we've sifted through literally hundreds of cases of ghost sightings, strange encounters with mysterious creatures, sightings of dark shadow entities, cases of alleged psychic ability, ancient and modern-day curses, eerie premonitions, haunted houses, poltergeist encounters, time-slip stories. The list goes on. But there's still one topic of the paranormal which I find absolutely fascinating. One topic which we've never covered. An avenue of the paranormal which is so strange and so incredibly rare that when it happens, attention is drawn to it. But that attention rarely seems to make the news. Is it because that the majority of people would find these particular stories too unbelievable? Too far outside the boundaries of what is deemed credible.
This is episode 42 of the Haunted UK podcast. And in this episode, we go in search of paranormal fire starters. Whilst being a rarity, there are many cases out there which tell of individuals who have been able to seemingly start fires by simply using their minds. There's a name for this ability, pyrokinesis. And if you think that this in itself is completely unbelievable, then how about the possibility that poltergeists can also start and control fires? Again, There are cases out there which tell of this tremendously strange phenomenon taking place. And if these stories and their witnesses are to be believed, then it puts forward a frightening hypothesis that both the human mind and poltergeist phenomenon are things that we still know very little about. What kind of energy and mechanics can be behind these incredibly dangerous abilities? And how can they be harnessed? In this episode, we'll go into a number of these fascinating cases and hear about the sometimes terrifying abilities that some individuals claim to have. But we'll also be hearing about how an already truly frightening paranormal entity, the poltergeist, can also have this ability. We begin this episode by looking at the curious case of Emma Tablate who in 2011 was a three-year-old girl living in a remote village in the Philippines. Emma began displaying a very disturbing gift in front of her mother and many other witnesses. She could simply look at something, a book, a painting, an item of clothing, for instance, and just by staring at it and saying the word fire, she could inexplicably cause the target object to burst into flames. Both Emma's mother and father could find no rational explanation for their daughter's disturbing gift, but witnessed it on many occasions, commenting that whatever object she would either look at, or sometimes even just mention, that object would begin to burn. It was journalist Carol Villaggio and her cameraman, Mark Villaluz, who first heard about Emma and her astonishing, yet confounding ability. Travelling to the village and the home of Emma and her family for the first time, Carol commented that it was an incredibly poor area, where poverty and lack of food were commonplace. Both Carol and Mark witnessed firsthand the unique ability that this little girl seemingly possessed, and could find no obvious trickery behind her demonstrations. They both witnessed clothes being set on fire, and even Mark's camera equipment would malfunction and stop recording when Emma turned her attention to it. Carol remarked that because of the level of poverty in the area, burning clothes, using some sort of trickery, to gain attention would have been foolish. These are items that cost money. Money that the family just didn't have. As the story of this young girl began to spread, More witnesses came forward with their accounts of what they'd seen. Police officer Manfredo Palcat said that he'd been a regular visitor to the Tablate household, and for weeks, nothing happened. Then one day, as he was sitting there, with Emma in full view, the bread, which Emma had been taking bites from, suddenly caught fire and started to burn. Emma was simply looking at the bread, saying the word fire repeatedly. As word of this young girl's gift began to spread, the church decided to get involved to see what all the fuss was about. The Philippines is a very religious country, with an astonishing 78.8% of people being Roman Catholic. So it wasn't long before pastors from the local churches started showing an interest in Emma Tablate. As well as being a deeply religious country, the Philippines is also a very superstitious nation, and stories of paranormal entities which were attached to the young girl soon started to circulate. 
locals, and even Emma herself stated that evil spirits, which took the form of shadowy dwarves, were the real culprits who were responsible for all of the fires. They'd even been blamed for a number of blazes which had started in houses and other buildings. But was this just a case of local folklore taking over and influencing the opinions of those involved? When Pastor Edmundo Celis arrived to see Emma, he was convinced that the stories of the spirits of the dwarves were true, and he was determined to rid the young girl of this evil infestation. An exorcism was performed and was hailed as a success, but since Pastor Edmundo Celis cast out these demons, which he felt certain were the cause of all these fires, little more was actually known of what happened since in this case. Was this a trick after all? Was this a desperate family trying to get out of poverty by using their daughter and a story of pyrokinesis to generate money? Whilst all of this was going on, paranormal researcher, psychic, and fellow firestarter, Ada Victoria, was convinced that Emma had genuine supernatural powers, but she believed that they were manifested from a previous life. This wasn't the case, however, for Chief Intelligence and Investigation Section Officer John Bonatillo. He brought a selection of thermal imaging cameras to see if he could find any evidence of extreme temperature fluctuations in both Emma and the house she lived in. The house was also the location of where these strange, mystical, evil dwarf spirits were attached to. But after multiple scans using the camera equipment, nothing out of the ordinary was found. Bonatillo stated that the phenomena could be related to paranormal or supernatural sources, but at the time when he conducted his tests, he could find no evidence. Our next story takes place in Marylebone, London, and what transpired during these series of incredibly strange and terrifying incidents were actually recorded in a newspaper called the Royal Cornwall Gazette on the 22nd of January, 1820. Elizabeth Barnes was only 16 years old when she was detained and interviewed at great length by sitting magistrate J. E. Conant Esquire. It was established that Elizabeth had been a servant for several years for a Mr. John Wright, who was a linen draper and owned his own business. His home was located in Folly Place in Marylebone, London, and this is where a strange series of events took place. Mr. Wright claimed that Elizabeth had been no trouble at all during her time working for him and his family, describing her as a very competent and polite member of his household staff until Wednesday the 5th of January, 1820. Mr. Wright accused Elizabeth of somehow starting a series of fires, which not only damaged areas of the house, but also severely injured one particular member of the Wright family, John Wright's own mother. The first fire broke out in the shop which the Wrights owned, and there were only two people present at the time, the elderly Mrs. Wright and Elizabeth. Mrs. Wright stated that the fire ignited suddenly in a drawer located under the shop counter, but Elizabeth was nowhere near it. The fire did considerable damage to the shop, but no one was injured, until two days later, on Friday the 5th of January. Mrs. Wright said that it was around 11 o'clock in the morning, and again, she was in the company of Elizabeth only. She said that she was sitting quietly by the fire in the kitchen when she decided to get up and leave the room. She hadn't even got as far as the door when she claimed that her clothes suddenly burst into flames. Mr. Wright heard the screams and quickly made his way to the kitchen to extinguish the fire and save his mother from possibly burning to death. Again, Elizabeth was allegedly nowhere near Mrs. Wright. With his mother in pain due to her injuries, Mr. Wright instructed Elizabeth to keep a watchful eye on his mother, but the very next day, another fire broke out, in the same location. Mr. Wright had been out earlier that day and returned home at around midday. He hadn't been in the house long 
when he suddenly heard the terrible screams of his mother coming from the kitchen. Mr. Wright rushed in and saw his mother engulfed in flames. Yet again, his quick thinking saved his mother's life. But there were a few things that he noted which he thought were strange. His mother was at least eight feet away from the fireplace, with only the bare remains of a fire still smoldering. Elizabeth was also nowhere near Mrs. Wright, and she also testified to this. So how had the fire started? And why was Mrs. Wright the focus? Because he had no reason to suspect her of any wrongdoing, John Wright repeated this request to Elizabeth to make sure that she takes care of his mother and to immediately inform him should any other incidents like this take place. Mr. Wright didn't have to wait long. On Sunday the 7th of January, both Elizabeth Barnes and Mrs. Wright were once again in the kitchen. John Wright was only a short distance away upstairs when he heard his mother scream out in agony in the kitchen. He immediately rushed downstairs and burst into the kitchen and was greeted by the sight of his mother standing up and completely engulfed in flames. But Elizabeth was nowhere to be seen. Quickly grabbing the rug from the floor, he wrapped it around Mrs. Wright to extinguish the flames, which again saved her life. John Wright reported that areas of her clothes were completely burnt to a cinder and that she'd suffered visible burns to parts of her body. Amongst the chaos, John Wright pleaded with his mother to tell him what had happened. In between sobs, she told him that as she made her way across the kitchen, her clothes mysteriously caught fire, and within an instant, she was engulfed in flames. She described that as the flames touched her skin, she felt the sensation of knives being drawn across her body. She told her son that Elizabeth then returned to the kitchen to see what was going on. But instead of having sympathy, she began to laugh. At this point, John Wright instructed Elizabeth not to leave the room for one moment, as he suspected that she'd thrown some sort of accelerant over his mother. But she said that no such thing had happened. She felt that a supernatural force had started the fire. He then called upon his sister to go into the kitchen to look after their mother, but even as this conversation was taking place, screams again were heard from coming downstairs. And it was John's sister who would witness the distressing sight of seeing her mother desperately trying to stop yet another fire from engulfing her completely. John's sister tore the clothing off her mother and put the fire out as quickly as she could. By this time, Mrs. Wright was in a terrible state. So John and his sister helped her upstairs and put her to bed. So at this point, Elizabeth was alone downstairs. Mrs. Wright was alone in the bedroom upstairs, and John Wright and his sister were on their way back downstairs. They never made it to the bottom of the stairs, because within a few seconds of leaving their mother asleep in bed, they were alarmed to hear her screams once again. Rushing back up and into the bedroom, they saw that somehow, the bedclothes as well as the curtains were now on fire. Mrs. Wright was once again desperately fighting to put the flames out, and in doing so was sustaining more injuries. After this fire was finally extinguished, John called down to Elizabeth to join them upstairs, but was shocked once again when Elizabeth informed John Wright that another room upstairs was now on fire. How could this be happening? How could Elizabeth be doing this seemingly right in front of everyone, but never being seen actually starting a fire? This latest blaze caused significant damage, and the family were now on constant lookout, just waiting for something to happen. And they didn't have long to wait. On Tuesday the 9th of January at around 8.30pm, John Wright returned home to find his sister in a state of complete panic and confusion. She told her brother that she'd witnessed firsthand a drawer in the counter in the shop suddenly begin to smolder and burn. Quickly taking action, she said that she had pulled the drawer closest to it out in an attempt to stop the fire from spreading. She said that this drawer hadn't been touched by fire at all, 
and quickly gave it to Elizabeth Barnes, instructing her to take it down to the coal cellar while she tried to put the fire out which was now consuming the counter. A short while later, Elizabeth returned to inform her that the coal was now burning. Mr. Wright immediately made his way to the coal cellar to find it in flames, and there was no way that he was able to put it out. Fire servicemen were called, who brought engines to help put the raging inferno out. By this time, the whole family were panicking, completely unsure of when and where the next fire would start. After the fire in the coal cellar had been put out, a neighbour by the name of Mr. Ebden offered to sit up all night with John Wright's sister to keep watch on the house. Everyone agreed to this. Elizabeth Barnes was then told that she was to go straight up to bed and not to leave her room. The time was now around 11pm, but the evening's events weren't over yet. Only a few minutes went by before Elizabeth returned downstairs begging Mr. Ebden and John Wright's sister to quickly accompany her upstairs, because another room was now on fire. The room belonged to a lodger named Mr. Bannister, but upon entering the room they found him about to go to bed, with no sign of any fire at all. But the group could definitely smell smoke. They went to the room next door, which was being lodged in by Mr. Bannister's sister, and to their horror, they found it filled with thick smoke and blazing flames. Fire officers were now staying in the house to monitor and deal with any further fires, so this was put out quickly, but the room was severely damaged. The day after, two more fires broke out, one in the same room and one in another separate room. Both of these fires resulted in further damage, but were again quickly extinguished by fire officers. Charges were brought against Elizabeth Barnes, but although witnesses saw her near the majority of the blazes, nobody ever saw her start them. With no concrete evidence to convict Elizabeth Barnes of arson or any other crime, it is assumed that she was released without charge. This case of strange events remains unsolved, and Elizabeth Barnes was never heard from again. So what happened here? Was Elizabeth using a type of supernatural power to start the fires? Was she the focus of some sort of poltergeist manifestation that was able to concentrate its energy to ignite materials at will? Was she innocent? Perhaps more a victim of her time and class? It seems that we'll never know. Another fascinating case of a potential paranormal firestarter was recorded in Illinois, America, in 1948. As with the previous story of Elizabeth Barnes, this case also revolves around a teenager at the center of these frightening and strange events. Charles Wiley owned a farm on the outskirts of Illinois and lived there with his wife and brother-in-law. At some point in 1948, Arthur McNeil and his two children, Arthur Jr. aged 8 and Wanette aged 13, moved into the farm by invitation due to a messy and painful divorce. Wanet was particularly unhappy with the separation of her parents and emotions were constantly running high. On the 7th of August 1948, the fires began. But these weren't blazes at first. They began as smoldering spots on the wallpaper of the farmhouse living room. These spots would appear and expand a few inches before igniting into flames. Day after day, these burning spots would suddenly appear at will, with the family constantly having to drench the walls in water to put them out. Charles invited neighbours and friends over to the property to see if they could work out how these fires were starting, but nobody could come up with a satisfactory explanation. Even the local fire chief, Fred Wilson, who witnessed these fires break out from literally nowhere, could not furnish the Wiley family with a reason as to how or why these strange events were taking place. Over the coming days and weeks, more fires would break out at the property. Witnesses saw an ironing board catch fire with nobody anywhere near it. The front porch burst into flames, and even curtains would seemingly ignite at completely random times. 
Due to the damage to the house, Charles Wiley called his insurance company and asked if investigators would attend to see if they could work out how these fires were starting. Fire Chief Fred Wilson also made contact with Deputy State Fire Marshal John Burgard. More than 200 fires would start of their own accord in the week that followed, and many of them were witnessed by the insurance investigators, Fire Chief Fred Wilson and also Deputy State Fire Marshal John Burgard. Burgard even made a statement to the press saying, quote, Nobody has ever heard anything like this, but I saw it with my own eyes. End quote. It wasn't long before one of these fires would burn out of control and cause damage which couldn't be repaired. On Saturday, the 14th of August, one such fire completely consumed the farmhouse, and even attending fire trucks couldn't save the property entirely. Now without a home, Charles Wiley, with the help of family, friends and neighbours, constructed a makeshift tent for him and his wife to stay in, whilst Arthur McNeil, Arthur Jr. and Wanet moved into the garage. Charles Wiley must have thought that this nightmare had finally come to an end, but more was still to come. In the space of three days, a fire broke out in one of the barns as both Charles and his wife were busy milking cows and completely destroyed the building. The milk house was next. This was being used as a kitchen and dining room, and it suffered a number of fires which, like in the main farmhouse, seemed to start in the walls themselves. However, another fire started in a cabinet discovered by Charles Wiley's wife. After smelling burning, Mrs. Wiley was shocked to discover a smouldering newspaper inside the cabinet. According to Mrs. Wiley, nobody could have ignited it, as there had been nobody in the milk house apart from her. And things only seemed to get worse. Another blaze broke out in the chicken house, and later on that same day, the family's second and last barn burned to the ground in less than 30 minutes. Firefighters could only look on as the barn crumbled under the ferocity of the flames. This fire had allegedly burned so hot that the firefighters could get nowhere near it, let alone begin to fight it. The Wiley family were now homeless. They had six farm outbuildings left, but these weren't suitable to live in, so they took up residence in a nearby abandoned house. The story of these strange and frightening events was spreading, excuse the pun, like a wildfire, and the farm was now swamped with a mixture of police, fire officers, self-confessed investigators, press and media representatives, and a huge number of the general public, all curious to see if they could work out who or what could be starting these fires. Theories ranged from UFO invasion, pockets of gas, aliens, radio waves, and even fly spray, to the more down-to-earth possibilities such as arson. Even the United States Air Force weighed in with a theory that involved the type of direct radiation weapon being used by the Russians. But this was never proved correct, or even possible. The mainstream authorities were still convinced that it was arson, and on the 30th of August, they announced to the family and the media that they'd solved the mystery. Local police and the fire department claimed they had found the cause of the fires, and they had a suspect in custody and a confession. The suspect was none other than 13-year-old Wynette McNeil, and in what seemed like a story which was torn from a fantasy novel, authorities stated that Wynette had been starting the fires using matches when nobody was looking. Every single witness account was literally ignored. Every person who came forward to state, on the record, that they had seen these fires break out right in front of their eyes, with nobody physically starting them, was dismissed. Instead, it was 13-year-old Wanette who was thrust into the spotlight. Her reasons for starting the fires, according to the authorities? She was unhappy that she couldn't see her mother, was unhappy living at the farm, and, this is the best bit, she didn't have any pretty clothes anymore. 
Many of the journalists, media outlets and paranormal investigators who reported on the case weren't entirely convinced of the conclusion that the authorities had come to either. Many of them felt that this was a clear-cut case of poltergeist activity or some other form of paranormal manifestation. These same journalists and investigators also felt that the confession which was obtained by the authorities was bogus, forced and false. So what happened in the aftermath? Well, the insurance company fully paid out on the damage to the farmhouse and the barns, and the Wiley's farm continued to operate. Arthur McNeil and his son continued to live with the Wileys for a time afterwards, but then moved away. But what about Wynette? What happened to her? Well, she was first of all sent to a juvenile mental hospital for evaluation. Psychiatrist Dr. Sophie Schroeder, who was tasked with examining her, stated that she found no reason for Wynette to have acted this way. She found her to be completely normal in every respect and stated, quote, She's a nice little kid, caught in the middle of a broken home. End quote. After her release from the hospital, she was sent to live with her grandmother and lived a completely normal life free from any other strange incidents or phantom fires. One official who didn't tow the party line, as far as the conclusion that Wynette was deliberately starting these fires, was Fire Chief Fred Wilson. He stated on several occasions, even after his retirement, that he witnessed firsthand fires starting with nobody anywhere near them. No accelerants could be found. And to simply put this down to a young girl using a box of matches and fooling everyone was just sheer nonsense. Chief Wilson went to his grave convinced that something paranormal had taken place at Wiley Farm. We now move from America to Canada and the strange case of a haunted farmhouse in Caledonia Mills, Nova Scotia. Alexander MacDonald and his wife Mary had been happy working their farm for many years before adopting their daughter, Mary Ellen. It was January 1922, and Mary Ellen was 16 years old, and to any outsider, this hard-working family would have been seen as a model of happiness and unity. But things weren't to stay this way. This was when strange disturbances began to occur. Disturbances that would even cause the family to flee the farm and their home in complete terror. A fire suddenly broke out in the house, not near a heat source such as a stove or fireplace, but in a random location at one end of the house. This fire was quickly doused by Mary and Alexander, but as soon as this one was extinguished, another one broke out in the opposite end of the house. Again, this was put out, but other items began to burst into flames patches of wallpaper, even wet towels. In total, 30 fires would suddenly erupt at the property and nobody could be seen as being the culprit. As with the case involving Gwennett McNeil, friends and neighbours were brought in to keep watch all over the house. But not one person witnessed any fire being started deliberately. And as unexplained as these fires were, they weren't the only strange things occurring at this quiet and idyllic farmhouse. The family's livestock would be moved from stall to stall, with no one around to do so. These animals would also have their tails mysteriously braided, and on some occasions would be found locked outside the barns. Strange ash-like substances would be found in the milk store. Noises would be heard inside the house, as well as the sensation of being watched and even touched by a strange, invisible, unidentified force. It didn't take long for the family to become so scared and confused by all that was going on that they jumped at the chance to temporarily leave their home so that local authorities could move in and investigate. As news of these strange events began to spread throughout the world, journalists and paranormal investigators would descend on the property. Even the famous author, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, was contacted to see if he would be interested in making the journey to Canada to help with the investigations. But he declined, 
two people were key as the investigations began to take place. Police detective P.G. Carroll and journalist Harold Whidden, who worked for the Halifax Herald and was also the man responsible for getting the story coverage outside of Canada. Both men spent two nights at the farm and both witnessed what they felt were real paranormal phenomena. Noises were heard, as well as a strange dark atmosphere which the men felt would envelope the house. But the most frightening thing that both men would encounter would be the physical aspects of whatever was haunting the house. Back then, journalists would take creative license to a whole new level to get their name and stories out into the world. You only have to look at how the curse of the Egyptian pharaoh Tutankhamun was conjured up. Reports surfaced of a curse which was found inscribed on a stone when the tomb was opened. It read, quote, Death shall come on swift wings to him who disturbs the peace of the king. End quote. Problem was, there was no inscribed stone and no curse. This was most likely made up by embittered journalists grown sour when George Herbert, the 5th Earl of Carnarvon, gave exclusive access to the discovery of the tomb to the Times newspaper. Police detective Peachy Carroll, on the other hand, had a reputation to uphold and wouldn't be fooled by trickery or any kind of journalistic hype. But even he was convinced that something else out of the ordinary was going on at the house. Now, although Sir Arthur Conan Doyle turned down the offer of investigating the farmhouse, one man who didn't was Walter Franklin Price. At the time, he was one of the top researchers for the American Society for Psychical Research, and there was no way that he was going to pass up the opportunity to get inside this location and conduct a full and detailed investigation. Franklin Price, though, had a few conditions which he wanted adhered to while he was at the farmhouse. Nobody was allowed to be there without his explicit permission, not even the family, and that raised many eyebrows. According to both Detective Carroll and Harold Whidden, Franklin Price spent the first day organising his room within the property, making himself as comfortable as possible and not seeming to take too much interest in what he had been invited there to do. But this would change. Franklin Price's investigation lasted three weeks, and only on a handful of occasions would he let others into the property. But all the time, he was trying to find explanations for the strange goings-on. The MacDonald family were invited back to the house to see if any of them could trigger any paranormal events, and on one occasion, the McDonald's, Franklin Price, and Dr. Prince Dan Gillivery, who was a neighbour, all witnessed a very strange incident. Also present was journalist Harold Whidden, and as they all stood in the main room of the farmhouse, Whidden appeared to go into some sort of trance. He requested that he was given a pencil and some paper, and was then sat at a table, where he appeared to scribble for around two hours, but in amongst the seemingly random scrawling was a message. Widden claimed that he had been possessed by the poltergeist that was allegedly haunting the property, and it had confessed to setting all the fires and causing all of the disturbances. Walter Franklin Price appeared to agree with this conclusion, and even at the very start of his investigation, he judged that it was a poltergeist which had attached itself to the McDonald's adopted 16-year-old daughter, Mary Allen. He felt that she was the catalyst, the carrier, the vessel that was allowing this manifestation to create all of this mayhem and damage. But this opinion wouldn't last long. In a complete U-turn, Franklin Price stated that he'd solved the mystery, and it wasn't down to anything paranormal or supernatural. It was down to one person, Mary Ellen. He said that during his investigation, he'd found a source of flammable liquid, which he felt could have been the accelerant needed to start the fires. He also noted that all of the fires which seemed to ignite on the wallpaper were never higher than five feet off the ground, the approximate height of Mary Ellen. He simply put all of this down to a young girl who was most likely sleepwalking 
in a complete dissociative state, who had no recollection of anything, and she was starting all of these fires. Because of his reputation within the field of paranormal investigation, Franklin Price's word on the case was seen as the final conclusion, but many people thought otherwise. Journalist Harold Whitten, who, if you remember, became allegedly possessed by the poltergeist who he felt was responsible for all the phenomena at the farmhouse, was stunned when Walter Franklin Price denied all knowledge of the incident ever taking place. Price said that he never witnessed Whitten perform the automatic writing resulting in the confession from the poltergeist. It also became clear that Price never addressed the strange incidents involving the farm animals being moved from stall to stall. He simply ignored it, but there were credible witnesses who stated that even after the animals being secured by more than one person, within minutes, they would be freed and moved. Nobody ever saw anyone doing this at all. Mary Ellen herself quickly jumped to her own defense and stated on the record, quote, I have never set fires. I have never untied the cattle in the barns. I never plaited the tails of the horses. I would have been afraid to. First, they claimed I had a boyfriend, a sweetheart, who did this. Now they say I did it. I tell you I don't care who Dr. Price is. He ought to be ashamed of himself. But in a cruel retort, Franklin Price claimed that Mary Ellen couldn't have made such a statement because the girl who he had met at the farm had, quote, the mind of a four-year-old, end quote. This statement was quickly shot down by all those who knew Mary Ellen, asserting that she was of normal intelligence, had a happy disposition and a bright smile. Walter Franklin Price also stated that all of the phenomena, which was witnessed by both Detective Carroll and Harold Whidden, was caused by the cold during the evenings. He felt that this drop in temperature could have easily caused hallucinations and mistakes in judgment. October of the same year, the McDonald's moved back into the farmhouse, hoping that they could get back to some sort of normality. But it wasn't long before the fires started again, and this time, authorities wouldn't be so kind or patient. Local police were completely sidestepped, and instead higher authorities descended upon the farm with one target in mind, Mary Ellen. She was detained and immediately sent to the Nova Scotia home for the insane, where she stayed for many years. Both police detective Carroll and Harold Whidden were deeply troubled by this, but could do nothing to alter the decisions of the authorities. Harold Whidden was allegedly so disturbed by what he had witnessed at the McDonald farmhouse that he refused to hand over his story to the newspaper he worked for, the Halifax Herald. He instead kept the account of his and Detective Carroll's experiences locked away. His family have since released these documents, and they can be found online. Whatever the cause of the disturbances at the MacDonald farmhouse, it still remains unsolved and one of the strangest recorded hauntings in history, and a very strange case of an alleged paranormal firestarter. Our last story is the incredible case of Scottish nanny Carol Compton, who found herself at the centre of accusations of attempted murder, arson, and very strangely, witchcraft. Carol's story is full of twists and turns. Back in 1982 when these events took place, she would have been the last person to think that all of this could have happened to her. At 20 years old and living with her grandmother in the southwest Scottish coastal town of Ayr, Carol was happy, employed and engaged to an Italian man, Marco Vitulano, who worked at the Turnbury Hotel, also in Ayr. But Carol always felt as if she'd been carrying a curse or spirit around with her, and it was this that would influence things in her surroundings, such as items disappearing from one place only to reappear somewhere else. Electrical objects such as alarm clocks, kettles and radios would regularly break down, and a constant run of bad luck stalked her always wherever she went. 
Whilst at work, she narrowly missed having her leg badly severed by a conveyor belt which failed and snapped for no reason. Whilst she was packing goods at her place of work, but the final straw came when her Italian boyfriend Marco was called back to his native country to complete his national service. This meant that they would be apart, and there was no getting out of it, unless Carol moved to Italy to be near her fiancé, and that's exactly what she did. But things didn't go to plan. At all. Carol needed to find work fast, and also a place to live, so the idea of becoming a live-in nanny or au pair seemed an attractive option. The first family that took Carol on were the Risi family. The Risi's had wealth and also a number of properties. Carol soon settled in at the Risi's main residence in Rome, but it wasn't long before odd things started to happen. After only a short number of days, an incident happened which began to turn the family's trust in Carol into suspicion. Rosa was a maid who also worked for the Risi family, and one day, while performing her duties, she witnessed Carol walking close to a religious picture which was hanging on a wall nearby. As Carol passed the picture, it fell from the wall and smashed to the floor. Rosa was horrified. Quickly grabbing hold of Carol, she made her sign the cross over herself. She then said a prayer as she held on to her. Not long after this incident, the family travelled to their home in the Alps, and it was only a day or two into their trip that a fire mysteriously broke out on the second floor of the property. The damage was so severe that it was declared unsafe. Firemen who attended the blaze said that it was likely started by old faulty wiring, as another house next door had suffered the same fate a few months earlier. But over the next few days, two more fires would break out. One in a bin, and another more serious one in the bedroom of the Reese's two-year-old son, Emanuela. This was enough for the family, who politely informed Carol that her services were no longer needed. She was let go, and she now had to find more work. It was now the end of July 1982, and another opening for a nanny presented itself to Carol. This time, it was with the Tonti family. The Tontis had employed a Scottish nanny before Carol, so this seemed like the perfect fit. But it wasn't meant to be. For a start, Carol had to move to Elba, which was taking her further away from her boyfriend Marco. But she had to find work somewhere, and if that wasn't bad enough, the Tonti's incredibly superstitious grandmother took an instant dislike to her. As with her previous job, strange things began to occur. After only a few days into her employment, the first fire started. It was in a mattress, but was quickly put out by the family. They had the house wiring and all the electrical sockets checked for any faults, but no cause for the fire could be found. It was then that poltergeist activity began to manifest itself, and it seemed to be happening wherever Carol was, as if she was emitting the phenomenon. Witnesses saw a statue fall from a shelf when no one was near it, a cake stand flung from its place on a table, and a blue glass vase which seemingly made its way off a small table and smashed on the floor. Then there was also the strange effect that Carol seemed to have on the electric meter and a boiler, which always sounded as if it was bubbling. But all of this only happened in Carol's presence, and witnesses to these events stated that she was nowhere near these items to influence them in any way at all. All of these events intensified the dislike the Tonti's grandmother already had for Carol, even to the point of her muttering the word Strega, or witch, behind her back. The poltergeist phenomena, which seemed to be attached to Carol, continued with scratching noises and crackling sounds, which appeared to come from all over the Tonti's house. And then there was another incident of another fire. This time it started in the cot of three-year-old Agnes. 
who Carol was employed to look after. For the grandmother, this was the final straw, and the police were called. She informed the police that it was Carol who had been deliberately starting the fires and that she was unsuitable to be in charge of a child. Carol was taken away in handcuffs and taken straight to Livorno Prison, where she was interrogated and accused of attempted murder. Being in a foreign country and now in a foreign prison, Carol was in all sorts of trouble. Under Italian law, a person can be taken to prison and left there for several years without actually being charged for a crime, and it wasn't long before Carol's reputation of being a witch and performing witchcraft soon spread around to her inmates, all of which would avoid her. Newspapers soon grabbed hold of this sensational story and ran with it, but far from having a negative impact, it was surprisingly positive. The British media was soon onto the story, feeding the narrative with headlines such as, quote, the girl they call a witch, end quote. All of this interest raised money and awareness in Carol's plight and her unfair imprisonment. The money was used to hire a lawyer and pay for her mother to finally travel to Italy to see her daughter. Paranormal experts also came out in support of Carol, specifically Guy Lyon Playfair, who was famously part of the team which extensively investigated the Enfield poltergeist haunting between 1977 and 1979. He, along with psychical researcher Dr. Hugh Pincott, offered services of help and support for Carol, directly to her lawyer, Sergio Minoverini. With all of the hype that was being generated by the media about possible poltergeist and paranormal phenomena being responsible, Carol tried to distance herself from these causes, instead choosing to say that she didn't feel as if she had any form of supernatural or paranormal abilities. Her trial finally began in December 1983, 14 months after she was imprisoned and in some sort of strange display of how dangerous this prisoner could be, she was placed inside a cage. This decision was overturned quite quickly, however, when her lawyer argued that she was neither dangerous nor a risk to the public. Many people came forward to give evidence both for and against Carol, including Agnes's mother, who stated that the only person who could have started the fire in her daughter's cot was Carol. She also said that after she accused her of starting the fire, Carol ran away and hid in the cellar. She alleged that there had never been any problems with nannies until Carol arrived, but that wasn't strictly true. Teresa Hunter, who was 22 years old at the time, took to the stand and stated that she lasted just 15 days in the employment of the Tonti family. Teresa said that the family hated her the day she took the job on and made her life a complete hell. On the third day of Carol's trial, a very strange spectacle unfolded. An old woman by the name of Chiara Lobina slowly made her way into court the soles of her clunky shoes eerily reverberating and ringing throughout the courtroom, and she was holding a crucifix. Dressed all in black, she introduced herself as a visionary and a faith healer, and said that it was her duty to help Carol Compton and her family by performing an exorcism. She said that the devil himself had given Carol the ability to produce and control fire by possessing her with the spirit of an 18th century witch. This was briefly entertained before guards were instructed to gently escort Ms. Labina from the court. Public prosecutor Arturo Sindolo pressed hard for a prison sentence of at least seven years. To the jury, he argued, quote, just because she has a nice face, an innocent face, it is not enough for people to sympathize with her. It is mere appearance, and people should not be influenced by her appearance. Carol Compton is a liar, 
She lied to her boyfriend and the families she worked for, especially the families. She showed them a face that was not a true face. End quote. He also went on to say that whilst he was responsible for her arrest, he was not solely responsible for the excessive time which Carol Compton had spent in prison. This was something that became necessary to give psychiatrists and criminologists time to interview and study Carol's case. It was also down to paperwork because of transfers between courts. Sindolo also made the point that over the course of the two jobs which Carol had taken, it was her that was the common factor when the fires broke out. The two families lived nowhere near each other and had never had any troubles like this until Carol arrived. Finally arguing that Carol would play on the fact that she couldn't speak Italian and people couldn't understand her. One psychiatrist claimed that in his view, Carol had created a persona of being a witch, that her mysterious mystical aura was merely an affectation, and what's more, she enjoyed the power this gave her, amused by the effect it had on others. After studying Carol, he felt that she had an abnormal and somewhat mischievous personality. Once both the prosecution and defense had played their parts in this strange case, the jury was sent away to come to a verdict. After six and a half hours, the jury of five men and one woman found Carol Compton guilty of two charges of arson. But the charge for attempted murder was dropped, as it couldn't be proved. She was given a two-year prison sentence. The judge ruled, however, that Carol should be set free with immediate effect because of the time that she had already served. It was his judgment that the remaining time would be based on a conditional discharge. Outside the court, Carol told the media, quote, I'm just an ordinary girl, perhaps a bit naive, who found herself in deep trouble through no fault of her own. I have nothing against the Italian people, end quote. Even the mother of her now ex-boyfriend, Marco Vitulano, stated, quote, I've never believed Carol could commit such terrible acts, like trying to kill a defenseless child, end quote. Marco had by now completed his national service and was working on a cruise liner. He never spoke to Carol again. In the days, weeks and months after the trial, experts who gave evidence came forward with their opinions. Fire Chief Officer Teodoro Compli stated on the record that during his 38 years as a fireman, he'd never seen fires like the ones he investigated. Another expert, a Professor Vitolo, also waded into the argument by supporting the fire chief. He said that the studies which he'd carried out on the fires seemed to suggest that they weren't started by something like a match or an accelerant. They were started by some form of immense heat causing them to break out. Over the years, many experts have come forward in support of Carol, with the majority of them stating that they feel that she was the victim of a focused attack by a poltergeist phenomenon. Professor Hans Bender suggested that Carol's experience could be explained by what he called a psychokinetic exteriorization, or a poltergeist attack which also included the ability to start the fires by using pyrokinesis. And to support his theory, the professor even pointed to the strange case of a young boy named Benedetto Supino. Benedetto, who lived in Fomina, Italy with his parents, began to display disturbing abilities at around the age of 10 years old. In 1982, he was sat in a dentist's office when the comic book he was reading suddenly burst into flames. There were multiple witnesses, including his parents, who all swore that he had no way of deliberately starting the fire. Things quickly developed from there, with Benedetto even suffering severe burns when he awoke to find his own bed on fire. An uncle of his even went on record stating that while he was simply holding a small plastic item in the palm of his hand, he was stunned to see it begin to burn. He noticed that as Benedetto was staring at it, the fire intensified. Over the next few years, 
Items such as books, papers, and even furniture would randomly erupt into flames, again in front of multiple witnesses, and again with no source of ignition or accelerant. Some witnesses even commented that they were sure they saw Benedetto's hands glow as he stared at the items. At the height of his apparent powers at 16 years of age, he was even able to set fire to fuse boxes, causing extensive damage. His parents would accompany him with appointments to doctors, where he would be thoroughly examined, but nothing could be found that would even begin to explain how this teenager could accomplish these actions. The family decided to seek the help of parapsychologist Dr. Demetrio Croce as a last-ditch attempt to try and help their son somehow harness and control his abilities. And it seemed to work. Benedetto Supino slowly faded from the public eye in the mid-80s, and his whereabouts are currently unknown. What we do know is that he was born on the 5th of December 1973. So, if he is still alive, he'd be 50 years old, and probably still living in Italy. So, what happened to Carol Compton after the court case had finished and she was granted freedom? Well, she moved back to the UK for starters. She even published a book in 1990 which detailed her entire experience, called Superstition, the true story of the nanny they called a witch. In 2003, a film which was based on the Carol Compton story was also released called Superstition, starring Charlotte Rampling, but many felt the movie suffered because the writers didn't fully understand the source material. Carol now lives in Yorkshire with her husband and three children. So, the question is, could these people really start fires using just their minds? Was poltergeist phenomenon a huge factor in all of these cases? Or were they all simply fooling everyone around them, witnesses and experts alike? Again, as with all of these stories, it's down to what you believe. But what I will do is leave you with a quote from journalist Brian Inglis, who, with a keen interest in the paranormal, followed the Carol Compton case as it was happening. Writing in the publication The Spectator, Inglis said that the judgment had created an unusual legal precedent. Quote, It is, I think, the first occasion when a court has taken into consideration the possibility that there might be a paranormal explanation for arson, or indeed, for any crime. The presiding judge admittedly declined to accept the explanation, but this was not because he held the view that the paranormal, being contrary to the laws of nature, cannot be pleaded as within the law of the land, something which judges have quite often asserted in the past. No. His objection was that if Carol was using some psychic force to start up the fires without intending to, why had there not been similar fires before her arrival in Italy or while she was in jail? So now that you've heard these stories, where do you stand on this very strange, dangerous and frightening phenomenon? What are your thoughts about the Carol Compton case? Was she guilty? a dangerous sociopath hell-bent on causing harm? Or was she possessed by an evil 17th-century witch? Or was she innocent, a victim herself? What is notable is that some of these cases center around women. Most of the time, their side of the story and pleas for innocence are ignored by the glowering authority around them. It, in fact doesn't feel too different from a 17th-century witch-hunt. The Carol Compton story in particular, though, is such an unusual and odd case that we would love to hear your thoughts. Let us know on Instagram at Haunted UK Podcast or Twitter at Haunted UK Pod. As with all stories and episodes in this podcast, it's down to you to decide what you believe but just think for a brief moment the next time something out of the ordinary occurs. Something which defies the laws of the universe. Something which makes you rub your eyes in disbelief. Scratch your head in bewilderment. 
makes you run for the hills. Because the next person to frantically type out a story and send it into us could be you. Do you have an interesting story which you'd be willing to share with the show? If so, your story could feature in our end-of-season listener stories episodes. Please get in touch with the show via email at contactus at hauntedukpodcast.com, marking the subject as listener story. We're waiting for your stories. As well as coffee, you can also follow the Haunted UK podcast on Twitter at Haunted UK Pod and on Instagram at Haunted UK Podcast. You can also find us on our website at www.hauntedukpodcast.com where you'll be able to keep up to date with news and announcements, browse and download our episode scripts, get in touch with us and much, much more. This episode was presented by Steve, produced by Pink Flamingo Home Studio, which you can also find on Instagram by searching for at Pink Flamingo Home Studio. The script for this episode was edited by Marie Waller Proofreading. For more information about this service, contact Marie at mariewaller.proofreading at gmail.com. For a list of all research sources which we found helpful for the writing of this episode, please see the show's notes. Thank you again for listening to and supporting the Haunted UK podcast. So until the next episode, stay safe and take care.